you'll find your place in your Bible with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. For those of you that may be just joining us here in the auditorium or online, this is a series of messages that we're in studying through the book of 1 Corinthians. And we, we have arrived at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And you might read through this with me in a moment and say, well, what does this have to do with me? But I think you're going to find in just a little while that it has a lot to do with you and me. I begin in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm reading from the New King James Version. You may be reading from a different translation, but you'll be able to follow along and get the gist of what's being said. Verse 1. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Now, therefore, it is, all, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourself be cheated? No. You yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Paul is obviously speaking to this church about some legal matters that were going on within the congregation. And before we consider the seriousness of these matters, I thought maybe it would be good for us to laugh just a little bit about some of these kinds of things. And I'm going to do that at the expense of my lawyer friends. So if you're a lawyer in the, in the room or you are a legal person in the room, please, please bear with me and have mercy on your pastor. Actually, what I'm about to tell you, these four little jokes are really like dad jokes. I mean, they are really, really corny. They're really, really corny, but I, I want you to be able to laugh a little bit before we get to the serious matter. For instance, have you heard about the lawyer's word processor? No matter which font you select, everything comes out in fine print. It's always in the fine print, isn't it? Or how many lawyer jokes are there? Only three. All the rest are true stories. Or what about this one? What do you get when you cross a librarian with a lawyer? All the information you need, but you can't understand a word of it. <laughs> Have you ever looked at those contracts, the ands and the ors and the ifs and the therefores? Or maybe my favorite one. A man walked into a lawyer's office and asked him how much he charged. The lawyer responded, it's $100 for three questions. The man asked, isn't that a lot? And the lawyer responded, yes. Now, what's your third question? <laughs> I have a lawyer friend in the church, and he says, people love to make fun of lawyers till they need one. And I have needed one at times, and I'm very thankful for the men and women who serve in that role in our society. But when you're talking about the law, and you're talking about going to court, and you're suing somebody, 
and there's some kind of a dispute between people, that's not really a funny thing, is it? That's something that's very, very serious. I've had the unfortunate opportunity to be in court on a number of occasions with people that were having troubles and they wanted uh, their pastor to be there sometimes just as an observant uh, on a time or two when they were wanting me to have to testify and thank the Lord I never had to. But I can just tell you that going to court with somebody to try to settle a dispute is never a pleasant thing. And if you've ever been there, it's never a pleasant thing to have to go to court to have to stand before the law, to have to give testimony on behalf of someone, to see two people at odds with one another. It's never a comfortable or a laughable matter, really. And for you to understand what is going on here and the seriousness of what's going on here, I need to give you a little bit of context, some background, historical background about what they're doing here in the city of Corinth. So you got to stay with me for just a few minutes. Put your thinking caps on and stay with me here for just a few minutes. Because Paul is dealing with something that, that is very specific to the Greek people, to the people that are living in that part of the world, uh, in that Roman culture, that Greek culture of that day. The, the Jews didn't usually go to the public law courts in order to solve their, their problems. They usually settled matters before the village elders or before the synagogue elders. When the Jews were dealing with things that related to justice, they settled it more in a family spirit than they did in a legal spirit. But that wasn't the case in first century culture in Corinth and in this Greek culture. I mean, the Greek culture was characteristically a litigious people. They were constantly thinking about cases. They were constantly suing one another. And the law courts were even one of their main sources of entertainment. Did you hear that? These cases, these legal cases were even one of their main sources of entertainment, believe it or not. Now, we don't have anything from Corinth itself about how the legal system worked, but we do have things that come from Athens and from the Athenian people of that day. And Athens is less than 100 miles from Corinth. And so they would have been very similar. And I want to give you what one historian says about how they practice law when they settle these kinds of cases in the city of Athens. And it would have been very much like this in the city of Corinth. And he writes... If there was a dispute in Athens, the first attempt to settle it was by private arbitrator. In that event, one arbitrator was chosen by each party, and a third was agreed upon by both parties to be an impartial judge. If that failed to settle the matter, there was a court known as the Forty. The Forty referred the matter to a public arbitrator, and the public arbitrators consisted of all Athenian citizens in their 60th year. So if you're 60 years of age, you could have been one of these arbitrators. Any man chosen as an arbitrator had to act whether he liked it or not under penalty of losing his rights as a citizen. But now here's where it gets even more hard for us to comprehend. The historian continues... If the matter was, not, was still not settled, it had to be referred to a jury court, which consisted of 201 citizens for cases involving small sums of money and 401 citizens for cases involving larger sums of money. There were even cases when juries could be as large as 1,000 to 6,000 citizens. This wasn't about deliberation. This was about the majority rules. He goes on. Juries were composed of Athenian citizens over 30 years of age. He goes on to talk about the fact that they were paid for their service. If they were employed in doing this, they were paid for their service. And he finishes out by saying, the citizens entitled to act as jurors assembled in the mornings and were allocated by lot to the cases on trials, on trial, the cases on trial. Think about that. 
Can you imagine sitting with four, 200, 400, 1,000, or 6,000 other people listening to a case be argued in your presence, knowing that at the end there's going to be a vote and the majority is going to rule and one person's going to win and one person's going to lose? Can you imagine what that must have been like and what that would have been like? It's just hard for me to even comprehend it when I think about the American court system. In Greek cities, men spent significant time deciding or listening to law cases. The Greek people were litigious people. They loved the law. They loved lawsuits. They loved to watch the unfolding of the lawsuits. And Paul is utterly shocked that this whole spirit of the Greek age has come right into the church and people inside the church are still suing each other and going before these arbitrators and even worse, going before these juries of large numbers of people to air out their dirty laundry in order to settle something that was a conflict between them. In the absence of television and other modern amenities, litigation was one of the primary ways that the Corinthian people passed their time. If they were living today, they would have loved the shows that are on our television, like Judge Judy. Don't you love Judge Judy? I've often thought as a pastor, there's going to be a day someday when I can talk to people like Judge Judy does, and I don't have to measure every word I have to say. But they would have loved things like Judge Judy and Judge Joe Brown and Judge Mathis and Judge Alex and Judge Hatchett or the People's Court or the Divorce Court or Court TV. Can you imagine those people from Corinth, those people in Athens? Can you imagine if they had a television with all of those kinds of shows on? Oh, you mean we're just as litigious as they are? You mean we love to watch these unfolding legal matters just as much as they did? Absolutely. Americans are very much like the Greeks, though our court system doesn't have a system where you have 200 or 400 or 600 or 1,000 people who end up settling a case. I brought a couple of pictures. They're actually in one picture of some legal documents that are used and uh, they actually show you some of the legal terminology. Can you all show me that? The, the legal document that was used. Maybe we don't have it. But is it, is it there? I think I'm going to sue the guys back there. there. There we go. Those are a couple of documents. I'm having fun, by the way. Trying to make lighthearted. Because sometimes it's hard to find those things. Uh, the, these are two different legal documents. Can you read the Greek? These two different legal documents that are there that are a matter of somebody coming to the court and either looking for uh, some kind of a case or having some kind of a suit that is being brought against other people. And so it was a very litigious community. It was very litigious like the American community. And it's something that we need to stop and think about for a few minutes today. Now, to understand these 11 verses, I've got to give you some broad uh, perspective on these 11 verses. Uh, and there's five of these that I want to give to you, just, just briefly if I can. First, this passage that we're reading today primarily speaks about small claims kinds of stuff. Did you hear that? This passage that we're reading today primarily speaks about small claims kinds of stuff. If you, if you go back to the text and notice in verse 1, he calls it a matter. At the end of verse 2, he calls it the smallest matters. And twice, verses 3 and 4, he calls it things that pertain to this life. This passage is not dealing with things related to criminal cases. They're dealing with small claims kinds of stuff. So let me just tell you, if your Christian spouse is beating you, call the police and file a restraining order. If your uncle who professes to know Christ molested your child, call the police and press charges. 
If your employee who goes to church with you embezzles money from your business, seek a legal remedy from the courts. They have broken the law. Just so you know. Just just so you know. If I find out or one of our church family finds out that you've murdered your husband or your wife, we're not going to be calling the deacons together. And saying, man, we need to talk about this and see what we're going to do. We're going to call the police. And we're going to tell them he shot his wife or she shot her husband. We're not talking about those kinds of criminal cases. We're talking about these small claims kinds of things where there's a dispute over a property line or there's some dispute over something financially between two people and they're going to court and they're suing each other related to these small claims kinds of matters. Secondly, this broad perspective of what we're looking at, this text does not prohibit all litigation between Christians, but it definitely addresses a lot of it. It does not prohibit all litigation between Christians, but it definitely addresses a lot of it. You realize that a vast majority of things could be settled in a different manner and keep Christians from suing each other. But there are times when it's appropriate to settle a matter in court. There are times when you need to get a legal rendering. But the question here is, in this particular text, have you applied the other appropriate remedies first? Have you sought reconciliation? Have you sought some kind of solution to the problem long before you ended up in any kind of a court, in any kind of a suit against another, another believer? Again, our 21st century American society is just as litigious as the 1st century Christian, uh, Corinthian society. I heard about a man that had an ant problem in his yard. If you've ever had them, you know how pesty they can be, pesky they can be. He bought some ant killer to deal with it and put the solution into an unmarked yard sprayer. Unfortunately, though, when he went to spray the ants, he accidentally grabbed the also unmarked Roundup sprayer instead. And as a result, all the grass around the anthill died, but the ants were unaffected. <laughs> it was a case of using a good solution for the wrong problem. And if we have a difference amongst ourselves, we don't immediately go to the court system in order to get it solved or reconciled. There are other means by which we should take care of these matters as much as is possible. You can't solve a spiritual problem with a legal remedy. Let me say it again. You can't solve a spiritual problem with a legal remedy. And I want to go one step further that's beyond the law. You can't solve these kinds of problems with a social media post. You just can't. These kinds of matters and others, you can go rant all you want. You don't solve the problem. You pour gas on the fire. The right remedy is the spiritual remedy. The remedy that comes out of the scripture that's given to us from God as a means for us to be able to reconcile when there's differences amongst us. Because the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. If there are people within a body of believers who know Jesus Christ, they ought to be able to figure out how to get along with each other without having to take one another to court to sue each other. Much of the time, Christians would be better off having a church member who looks to the Lord than a judge who looks to the law. The courts aren't set up to biblically determine the will of God in a matter. And that's what Paul says in essence in verse 5. Isn't there a wise man among you that you could take this to and resolve the issue rather than take it to the court system? Isn't there somebody in the church? Isn't there at least one wise man in your congregation? Number three, third observation. This instruction concerns a local congregation that is spiritually bound to one another in Christ and in covenant together. I want to read that again. This instruction in these 11 verses 
concerns a local congregation that is spiritually bound to one another in Christ and in covenant together. He's not talking about other believers, what happens toward other believers or with uh, other unbelievers. He's talking about people that are within the context of that local church. They are in Christ together. They're all believers in Jesus. And they are in covenant with one another. We are working together as the body of Christ to fulfill the work of God that he's given to us. Notice again, back in your Bible, in in the text, he says in verse 1, against another. And at the end of verse 6, he says, the saints... He says it again in verse 2, the saints. He says it at the end of verse 4, the church. Uh, He says in verse 5, among you. And then he uses this word brethren four times over the next three verses. Brethren or brother. And then in verse 7, he says against one another. This instruction concerns a local congregation that is spiritually bound to one another in Christ and in covenant together. Do you get what he's saying? In the secular sense of the word, the advice that Paul is giving is not good legal advice and it's not good financial advice. I mean, when he says, why don't you just rather accept wrong? Why don't you rather just let yourself be cheated? Very few lawyers would think that's good legal counsel. Very few, very few financial advisors would say that's good financial counsel. That Paul isn't writing for the secular community. Listen carefully to this next sentence as I've worded it. He is writing to Christians that have a responsibility to the testimony of Christ and the fulfilling of the Great Commission that supersedes winning a case in civil court. Do you, do you hear what I'm saying? Listen to it again. He is writing to Christians that have a responsibility to the testimony of Christ and the fulfilling of the great commission that supersedes winning a case in civil court. Think about it. You couldn't solve it with a private arbitrator, so you go to the court of 40. They assign an arbitrator. It's still not solved, so they send it to a jury court, a jury trial of 200 plus people, 400 plus people, 600 plus people, 1,000 plus people, two Christians within the same body that are in covenant with one another and in Christ together, airing their dirty laundry before an unbelieving world that only brings shame on the cause of Jesus and on the testimony of Jesus Christ. Isn't it possible that the conflicts that we sometimes face are because God wants us to be the model of our Savior when he was unjustly condemned and falsely accused and legally wronged, and yet he faced his accusers with the staggering words, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. When someone does us wrong and we don't retaliate, it's amazing how much we look like our nail-scarred carpenter from Nazareth. But that's not the litigious age we live in. That's not the advice that we normally get. We're often told that what we ought to do is take on this case and go after that person and make sure that we right this wrong. And in the process, we look less like our nail-scarred carpenter from Nazareth. As an American, we have a legal right to do a lot of things. But as a Christian, we have an obligation to not do something that can harm the cause of Jesus. The culture may tell us we have a right, and they do. Our families may tell us we have an offense. Our lawyers may tell us we have a good case. But the real question is, what does God say about the matter? That's the real question. I want to remind you of a man named Zacchaeus. He worked for the Roman government. He was Jewish, but he worked for the Roman government. He was given the right, the right, 
to extort his own people as a tax as a tax gatherer to extort from his own people it was a right that was granted to him by rome but once he met jesus christ and he was transformed by the grace of jesus christ he had a greater responsibility to demonstrate the difference that christ had made in his life and in the way he treated people And you and I who are in Christ and in covenant with one another, we have a greater responsibility than just exercising our rights and having our rights solidified in the court of law. We have the greater responsibility to the cause of Jesus Christ and to the work of his church and to the good of his people. I want you to remember something. The greatest problem in Corinth was not what they were doing or why they were doing it trying to resolve problems. The greater problem in Corinth was not what they were doing or why they were doing it. The greatest problem was where they were doing it. And where were they doing this? They were doing it in the presence of an unbelieving world who is always watching believers and looking for the cracks in the vase. They're not really genuine They're just phony. There's a fourth observation. I'm going to make this practical in a minute. There's a fourth observation. The fundamental problem that produced these kinds of legal issues is broken relationships. It's broken relationships. Can you imagine going to church at Corinth? They only had one church. They didn't have first church at Corinth and second church at Corinth and Corinth, uh, you know, Corinth extension service. They, they They had one church. Can you imagine going to church with these kinds of issues going on in the midst of you? And what was at the heart of these issues for the most part? They are relationship issues. They can't get along with each other. If you're looking for a church that exemplifies the self-centered carnality of their day, you won't find a better example than the church at Corinth. They were filled with this self-centered carnality. I mean, after all, they're arguing over who's the best leader. It's Apollos, it's Paul, it's Cephas. They're not the least bit upset that they have a man in their church congregation who's sitting there every week, who's sleeping with his mother, with his stepmother, and the church is doing nothing about it. They're proud that he's sitting there every week. And they're going before the courts before maybe as many as a thousand people to air their dirty laundry and in the process what are they doing they're harming the cause of christ and the gospel of jesus because they are self-centered and they are carnal in what they're doing so so i just want to say something are y'all still with me I, i just want to say something unless we get right with one another it's unlikely that we're ever going to see revival in our churches. Unless we get right with one another, it's unlikely that we're ever going to see revival in our churches. People come to services holding ill will towards others, and it hinders the Spirit of God from doing His greater works amongst His people. It's impossible to worship God fully and despise some of his family at the same time. Isn't that what John says in his epistle? You say you love God, but you hate your brother. There's a disconnect here somewhere. When I was a a young man, I was probably 17, 18 years of age. I wasn't married yet. I was standing with a small group of men that were complaining against our pastor. These men were older than I was. Some of them were old enough to be my father. I didn't add anything to the conversation, but I listened to the things they were saying when I should have walked away. And by staying, I gave tacit approval to what they were saying. We had a service one Sunday when a pastor came visiting pastor came and he preached from Acts chapter 24 verse 16. Do you know what it says? Paul speaking says, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. Paul says, I want to have a clear conscience before God and I want to have a clear conscience before people with other men. 
Well, I was stricken with conviction during the course of that message, and my conscience was bothering me because I knew that I shouldn't have listened to that information, and I didn't have a clear conscience vertically with God, and I didn't have a clear conscience horizontally with my pastor. I asked God that night to forgive me for listening to the gossip from a few men that were disgruntled with their pastor. Can I just tell you, there are plenty of people, you've been somewhere going on 41, working on 41 years, there are plenty of disgruntled people that don't like me. You can stand there and you can listen to it, or you can walk away from it. I stood there and I listened to it, and I had to ask God to forgive me, and then I went to my pastor during the invitation to that service, and I asked my pastor forgive me for, to forgive me for staying there and listening to it, what these, un, what these unhappy men were saying about him. Well, during the invitation that night, the people by this preacher were directed to get things right with others with whom they had, they had been wrong. Things where they were holding grudges, things where they had spoken against other people. And like me, all across the auditorium, there were people who got up and they were crisscrossing the auditorium and they were making things right with one another. And that night, God opened the door to do an even greater work for us and in us than had been done ever before. And might I just mention, that's what revival looks like. A lot of people have different ideas about what revival looks like, and there are other indicators of revival. But I'll tell you, when revival comes to a local church, people start getting along with each other. They start loving each other. They stop talking and gossiping about other people. They, start, they stop holding on to their bitterness and their anger toward other people. They get right with their brothers and sisters in Christ. And it may be that there's some of you are going to have to go and say, I'm so sorry for what I said. I'm so sorry for what I did. I'm so sorry for the way I acted. I'm so sorry for the way I behaved, for the way I've conducted myself. I was not acting like a believer in Jesus. Please forgive me. And there'll be a freedom that comes to you that you'll never have any other way. Fifth observation, number five. And this is going to stun you, I think. This passage was a stinging rebuke to this church, even to the point of bringing shame on them. You notice what he says in verse five? He says, I say this to your shame. Now hear me. This is not about legal problems. This is not about lawsuits amongst the congregation. This is not even about us not being able to get along with one another when lawsuits aren't present. Just listen to me for a moment. We've got to change some of our ideas about what a church should be like when we gather together. We certainly, when we gather, want to be a place where there's instruction and there's encouragement and there's love and there's fellowship and there's guidance in those, serving, in those services and in those gathering of believers. We want that kind of thing when we gather together. We want to worship, worship God together. But I want you to also know that it's true that the church isn't a place just to be comfortable The church isn't a place just to be comfortable. Actually, I will tell you that if you don't feel uncomfortable sometimes when I'm preaching, either, either I'm not right with God and I'm not preaching what I should be preaching, the kind of messages I should be preaching, or you're sitting there and you're not listening to God. Because there are moments when you come to a church service when the preacher is preaching and God is doing a work of conviction in your heart and you're squirming in your seat. Well, I'll just find me another church where I feel comfortable all the time. That's not what the church is about. This whole idea, now this carefully, I worded this carefully because we have a lot of these emotionally safe places in our world on college campuses and various other places. This whole idea that the church has to be an emotionally safe place where no one speaks against the sins of the people or corrects the error of their ways is an incomplete understanding of the purpose of the church. Don't misunderstand me. No loving 
No loving shepherd beats his sheep. No loving shepherd beats his sheep, but every loving shepherd has a responsibility that's laid out for him in the word of God to reprove, to rebuke, and to exhort. And do you notice there's twice as much correction as there is exhortation? To reprove, to rebuke, and to exhort. Look it up, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. Or just consider what the psalmist said in Psalm 119, verse 71. It is good for me that I have been afflicted. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. There are those moments when we ought to be squirming. Some of you may be this morning. You ought to be squirming in your seats. You ought to be under conviction by the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. There ought to be a sense of guilt and maybe even a sense of shame. Paul writes to this church and he says, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. (laughs) I may not get through this whole message today. Just think about this for a minute. Can you imagine being there on the first Sunday that this letter was written? I mean, the the first Sunday this letter was read. The letter that was written was read. And they didn't have Bibles like we have. They they didn't have, if you're going to hear the word of God, you had to listen to it being read. Can can you imagine Sunday's coming? And everybody's, you know, getting ready. This Sunday's got to be there for Sunday. And they get there on Sunday. Of course, you got the Paul group that's sitting over here, and you got the Cephas group that's sitting over here, and you got the Apollos group that's sitting over here, and you got, you got the Jesus group that's sitting over here, and that's Jesus in a derogatory way, not a positive way. The Jesus group that's sitting over here. And they got a man sitting right out here in the middle of them who's somebody prominent in the city, and they're proud. He, he's sleeping with his stepmother, but man, do you realize we have somebody important in our church? Do you realize who he is? And you got people that have cases that are working their way along their court system. Maybe they're already before the judges or they're going to be before these judges, these, these juries that are going to make their decisions. And they hear that they've got an answer to their dear Paul letter. That's what this is about, a dear Paul letter. We've got an answer. You know those questions we've been asking? Paul has written back to us. We can't wait to get the church to hear what Paul has to say. They didn't have Xerox machines. They didn't have Toshiba copiers. They had to wait to the, had to wait to the shepherd read it to them. Can you imagine them, all that selfish carnality that's in that room as they gather together? By the way, even though there was selfish carnality, they were not excluded from, they were not excused from joining together with the body of Christ. They were not excused just because there was selfish carnality amongst them. And they get together, they're all sitting in their spots, they're all feeling high and mighty about themselves, and the pastor begins to read the letter from Paul. And he first gives the stinging rebuke about their division that's amongst them, and then he gives a stinging rebuke in chapter 5 about the man who's sitting amongst them. Can you imagine being that man sitting in that congregation that day? Oh, you shouldn't say anything. And then he comes to the church body where there's people that are suing one another. Can you imagine? How do you think the people responded that day? Do you think that some of them sat there in their seats squirming in fidgety uneasiness? I mean, this entire letter, as we're going to see, there's a lot of positive things in it, but this entire letter includes one stinging rebuke after another. I mean, this church that you're reading about, we're studying, it was a mess. It was a mess. But I'll tell you what I hope. I hope they were under deep conviction. Now listen, and rather than getting angry at the message or the messenger, they decided to get right with their master, Jesus Christ, and the other members. That's what I hope took place in the city of Corinth. Now, with those five broad observations, I give you six quick applications. Are you ready? You're going to be on the screens, I hope. Here we go. Number one, live at peace as much 
as possible. Just live at peace as much as possible. Stay off social media with your rants and your angry words. And if somebody gets on there with a rant and angry words, it doesn't mean you have to comment beneath it. You remember the old sayings that we had when we were kids, don't poke the bear? Don't poke the bear or let sleeping dogs lie, right? Let sleeping dogs lie. Or how about this one? Don't stir the pot. Do you know those kinds of things come right out of the scripture? Listen to it, Romans 12, 18. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably, live peaceably with all men. Now, not everybody will let you do that, but as much as is in you, seek to live at peace with everybody. Stop poking the bear. Stop, uh, stop waking up the sleeping dog. Stop stirring the pot. One of my favorite Proverbs. I've never done this. As a kid, I had a dog. Its name was Inky. It's a Cocker Spaniel, jet black. I never did this to my dog, but I can imagine what would have happened. Proverbs 26, verse 17, he who passes by and meddles in a quarrel on Facebook. Well, that's not in the text. <laughs> he who passes by and meddles in a quarrel, not his own, is like one who takes a dog by the ears. I don't know if you know, I would imagine what happens when you take a dog by his ears and you start pulling that dog's ears, you're going to get bit. You're going to get mauled by that dog. And isn't that what happened to Moses? Moses had to flee Egypt because he intervened in a fight between two Israelites. Number two, live at peace as much as possible. Number two, love people whether you like them or not. I, I don't know if you get that or not. It's one of my favorite phrases. Since I wrote it, it's one of my favorite phrases. Love people whether you like them or not. We all come from different backgrounds. We all, all have different understandings of different things in life. There's differences amongst us, and we have to learn that there's naturally going to be a, a, an inclination towards some people more than other people. Some people we're going to enjoy being around more than we enjoy being around other people. That's just normal. That's just life. To be honest with you, there's some of you, when I see you coming, I run. <laughs> and I'm kidding, of course. I'm always reminded of what Paul says, that we become all things to all men, that we might by all means save some. But I'm telling you, the older I get, the harder it is to be that flexible. There's always going to be a person that grates on your nerves and gets under your skin. God places those people in your lives to test your obedience to loving others, even the difficult ones to love. Liking and loving aren't necessarily the same thing. Now, I like Mary and I love Mary. There are people in this world that I don't necessarily like. I'm not gravitating toward those people, but I'm still called to love those people, aren't I? We have to love people. Love people whether you like them or not. There's somebody in the congregation, I just like to get under his skin. I just like to say something just to stir him if I could, just one moment. That's not God, that's the devil. That's the devil sitting on your shoulder talking to you. What I'm talking about means that you treat the difficult people with the love just as God commands us. I mean, aren't we commanded to not only love our neighbor, but to love our enemy? We're, we're taught to love them both. Love isn't some kind of emotional feeling. It's not that you have to go spend hours and hours with that person necessarily, but it means you're going to treat them like Christ would treat you. You're going to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And if you're wronged by that person... You pray long and hard before taking any action against them. Which actions, if necessary, should be done within the context of the local church? 
so as not to bring shame on the cause of Jesus Christ and the testimony of Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Live at peace as much as possible. Love people whether you like them or not. Number three, listen to others instead of talking at others. Now, probably saying talking at others is not good English. So every English teacher is sitting there and you're vibrating in the pew. That's not the right way to say that, Pastor. That's not good English. But you get what I mean when I say it. Listen to others instead of talking at others. When you feel like you've been wronged by someone, the natural tendency is to get angry and start talking at them. And I don't know if you know this or not. I think you probably do well. This is an age of outrage. This is an age of outrage, and everybody seems to be angry all the time. And when people get angry, there's one of two extremes. There are some people who just won't talk at all. They won't tell you anything. They'll shut up, clam up, won't speak to you. And there's other people that'll get in your face and they'll yell just as loudly as you are yelling back at them. Can I tell you one of my favorite verses and something that I've not always practiced? I'm confessing to you, I've not always practiced it, but I've tried. And when I've practiced it, I've always found that it works. It's what Proverbs 51 says, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Talking at people. I've had people come at me, and my emotions are just like yours. They rise up within me. And my first response is, let me just tell you what I think. And I have discovered on the few occasions that I've tried it, when I back up and say, you know, you might be right. Let me think about this for a little while. I don't want to have an argument with you. I don't want to be in a conflict with you. I want to be right with God, and I want to be right with you. I have found that more often than not, the wrath goes away. But talking at people stirs up anger. Number four. Look to God for an equitable resolution. Look to God for an equitable resolution. When there's a problem between two people, look to God. Don't go to the court system. Don't don't put the, the dirty laundry before those that are unbelievers. Run to somebody that's wise in the church. Paul says, isn't there at least one wise man in your congregation? You ever felt like saying that? Isn't there somebody with good sense? who can look at this matter and and give us an understanding of how we ought to resolve it? That's what he's talking about, 1 Corinthians 6, 5 to 8. The least legally trained, spirit-filled believer is better qualified to handle a dispute between two Christians than the most legally trained unbeliever. Right? Paul says... Is it so that there's not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren? Look to God for an equitable resolution. Keep it out of the courts. Number five. Number five, you're going to be blown out of your seat, so just hold on. Lift up God's glory above your own good. I'm going to say something here that I need to hear. And you need to hear. Are you with me? I'm almost through. You need to hear it and I need to hear it. Jesus' reputation is a lot more important than yours or mine. Jesus' reputation is a lot more important than yours or mine. you got to ask, is your case really worth the cost to the testimony of Christ and his church? Is proving the other person wrong going to work out for the good of winning people to Christ? It's better to lose an argument than to lose your testimony. It's better to lose an argument than to lose your testimony. And number six, and finally, this is going to be tough. This is 21st century American society where everybody has rights. It's going to be tough. Let go of your right to be right. Let go of your right to be right. That's a common American pastime to push our own rights. I have a right to this. 
I have a right to that. If you come back tonight, I'm going to explain about modernity and post-modernity. Why things are the way they are and what it does to the inspiration, what it does to people's understanding of the inspiration of Scripture. And why now everybody's right, nobody's wrong, we're all right. Let go of your right to be right. Christian maturity is on display when a person shows a greater concern for the testimony of Christ than about their own personal rights. By the way, all of this lines up with exactly what Jesus said, doesn't it? Jesus says if he slaps you on one cheek, you turn to him the other. He says if he asks for your, 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 uh, if he asks for your tunic, you give him your cloak also. If he tells you to go a mile, you go with him two miles. Because a whole lot more important than our rights is the testimony of Jesus Christ. Jesus' testimony is a lot more important than yours or mine. By the way, look back at chapter 6. He makes this long list of people that won't inherit the kingdom of God. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners. But then notice what he says in verse 11. That's the people that are going to be passing judgment on their cases. That's the kind of people that will be looking at their cases. He comes in verse 11. He says, and such, notice the past tense, such were, past tense, some of you. But you were washed you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. In other words, just because they act that way doesn't mean you have to act that way. Just because everybody else loves the litigious society in which they live doesn't mean that you have to be litigious. 